this day. Lord, surely your ways are wondrous among us, mysterious, not fully fathomed by us, and so often forgotten by us. But we thank you, Lord, that through the days, through the months and years of our lives, one thing remains the same. You are faithful. You are true. Your loving kindnesses ever uphold us. Lord, we pray as we now look into this passage of your word uh, that you would use it, Father, to be nourishment for our souls, that you would feed our minds today, Lord, with the truth of who you are, that we might move forward from where we are today, Lord, with a greater confidence in you, our God. We pray that we might be reminded once again of eternal truths that will help us as we face whatever we're facing now and whatever we're about to face in the future. For Lord, uh, we are mere mortals. We cannot see around the corner of what lies before us tomorrow, but we thank you that you're Emmanuel, God with us, who will go with us every step of our lives. So we thank you, Father, for what you have for us in this time together in the Word. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. did some research years ago in which I found out that the first clocks here in the Western Hemisphere were known to exist about in the 1200s. They were only a mechanism that would ring every so often just on a consistent basis, letting you know that time was passing, I guess. Uh, it was in the 1300s that they added an hour hand so that they began to keep track of that kind of measurement of time. It was in 1600s that they added the minute hand <clears throat> and the second hand, <clears throat> so that they uh, able to now measure time in much more of a precise fashion. And it wasn't until 1865 that someone began to figure out, probably the Swiss, uh, began to figure out all these little gears and had a clock piece that you could wear on your wrist. And now Apple has gone ahead and reinvented that in this year, and there's this gadget now that will tell you everything about yourself and everything about everybody else that's on your wrist, <laughs> along with the time. So <clears throat> it doesn't change the fact that we desire to somehow keep control of time, and we are people who are very much aware of how time is moving past us as we now prepare to a, a new year. Uh, I've just gotten used to writing, 2014. Now we have to get ready to deal with the fact that a whole nother year faces us. And certainly all this fascination and desire to try to uh, keep track of time is another reminder that we are mortal creatures. We are people who have a beginning and we are conscious of the fact we have a forthcoming end. And since we are finite, we obviously can become quite obsessed about time and we can lose sight of some important considerations. And so tonight, this morning, sorry, tonight, this morning, I want us to consider, uh, yes, we keep track of time. This is morning still, so. Um, what I want us to walk away from is the truth today that God is in control of time. This is such an important principle. Our times are in God's hands. If you have your Bible, I hope you have that open to Psalm 31. As Jason read through the psalm, 
we get an idea that David, the writer of this particular reflection, a very reflective, very personal um, expression of his faith that was being tried and tested. Uh, You can tell that there are times and moments in his reflection on his current situation that he was at a very difficult plight in his life. There's a lot of stress in his life. There were a lot of difficulties he was facing. And in his reflection on all those things, he affirms this wonderful statement in verses 14 and then beginning of 15. He says, But as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. I'd like to take this consideration about the fact that God is controlling time. He is sovereign over every aspect of life, including the times that we face. And I'd like to think about three dimensions of this God's control of time as it relates to each one of our lives as we begin a new year. I'd like to take it in three tenses. I'd like to think, first of all, of the fact that our past time was in God's hands. Our past time. Even before we had any awareness of God, scriptures give us insight into this mysterious thought that God was in control of time, so encompassing that it had to do with time before we were even aware of time, even before we existed. That has to do with this understanding of election, which I'm not going to get into and fully explain today in any great detail, but I do believe it's important to understand that according to the scriptures, before any of us existed, before the mountains were brought forth, before ever you had formed the earth before the world was even brought into being from everlasting to everlasting God has always existed God not only stands over time but he stands apart from time because he is eternal and because God is eternal God acts in eternity in ways that we will never fully understand but he did reveal and does reveal to us the fact that he has taken steps and this I'm referring to is found in Ephesians 1 verse 4 which is a verse that's so deep and so profound, uh, it is over my head and being able to fully understand what he says. But we understand that before any of us ever existed, before we ever did anything or said anything or thought anything, we read that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, that is a deep and profound statement of truth. What we can say there is that what the writer Paul is saying is that God gave us grace in Christ Jesus before the ages began, not because of things that we have done, but because of his own purpose and his own grace. That is mysterious. And that is truth that is beyond my ability to fully explain to you why and how and wherefore, but that's what God has said. So much so that in Revelation chapter 13, we read that Jesus, described as the Lamb of God, was shed before the foundation of the world. Before human time began, God had a program, God had a plan, a plan of redemption that include a Savior dying for sinners in need of rescue. So much so that Matthew's gospel, when Jesus speaks of a future day, when he's separating out the sheep and the goats from uh, those who are 
entering the kingdom and those who are not entering the kingdom, he says to those, uh, the king will say to those on his right, Matthew 25, verse 24, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. There is some mysterious glimpses of the fact that God has worked in ways that are beyond our fully understanding, but what we understand is that His working extends before time began. It extends before we and our time began. It goes before this idea of B.C. or A.D. If you're a Christian, if you're one who understands your need of a Savior and you've come and you have repented of your sin, you've placed your faith in Christ, you must see that this is not something that has occurred because you deserved God's favor or because you did something right, but because God chose you in Christ before you existed. I don't fully understand it, but it's important to understand that God has worked in your past in mysterious ways, even when you were unaware that God even existed. Now I'm going to move past for that because obviously the text is really not dwelling on that, but that is a truth and important concept about our pastime. But I want to move to a more significant beginning of our existence in which we talk about conceptions. So not only election did God uh, have our times in his hands, but also in the idea of conception. Not only did God choose his people before they existed, but he planned our lives before we ever left our mother's womb. Psalm 139. Our brother Nick mentioned this and alluded to this even in his prayer, which we didn't even talk about. He says, the writer of Psalms says, David, when I was woven together, your eyes saw my unformed body. I love this concept of weaving together. Before the scientific and technical understanding of what all that we understand that to mean now, is that David is alluding to the fact that even in the putting together the complexity of DNA, of all of the the coding and information that's jam-packed into every cell of our body, all unique to each one of us that controls so much of who we are and why we have brown eyes or, or graying hair or you have uh, tall, uh, lengthy, long bones and your legs are so long and all the different components about who we are, all that is part of God and His understanding and what He put together in the forming of us in our womb. But He says beyond that, in Psalm 139, All the days ordained for me were written in your book, before one of them came to be. So we understand that God's sovereignty extends all the way back to the moment of our conception and every day thereafter. Think about that as you look back in your life and you see the providential hand of God. The fact that you are still alive today is part of the providential plan of God who knows your days upon this earth. I have no idea. You have no idea how many days you have upon this earth. But God has a part of this plan. It's interesting that Jeremiah, the morning prophet, was called into ministry with these profound and mysterious words. As God says to him, he's a very reluctant participant in God's plan for his life. <clears throat> and God assures him and says in Jeremiah chapter 1, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. How do you understand that? It's mysterious. It is the kind of thoughts that lead us to a sense of, I'm never going to fully grasp all of what God does and all that God has done. 
but I'm aware of the fact that there is a planning God who has operated long before I ever had any inkling of an idea that He existed. And that's why I believe in verse 7 of this psalm now, we're going to anchor this to what the psalmist was saying. The psalmist realizes in looking back upon his own life, Proverbs, Psalm 31, 7, he says, I will rejoice and be glad in your loving kindness because you have seen my affliction. You have known the troubles of my soul. You've not given me over to the hand of my enemy. You've set my feet in a large place. He reflects on his past. He reflects on the earlier years of his life. He realizes that God had helped him. God had assisted him. God had come to his aid in many different ways. Sometimes we're aware of those things. Sometimes we're not aware of those workings and actions of God on our behalf. But I find in reflecting on that, the psalmist certainly realizes that he had been through a very difficult time. Indeed, his struggle was profound in his past, but in the midst of all of those things, he realizes that God had been in his, his time had been in God's hands. And therefore, what I want to just suggest to us today is to, time, to take time to reflect is before any of us had an awareness of God, before we ever entered into this world, have you ever stopped to consider the mysteries of the fact that God has a plan and God has been planning and God is committed to that plan and God is working in your past in accordance to His grace and His sovereign good pleasure? That's a good thing to hang on to as we deal with what? Not only our past, but that's going to help us now in dealing with our present. And that's the second point I want us to reflect on as we continue in our text. Our times are in His hands. Our present time is in the hand of God. Here in this particular text, I've read it and reread it here and begun to realize that the psalmist was in a very difficult situation. You capture glimpses in the psalm of David being in anguish. Look at verse 4 as he talks about the fact that there's a net. There's some people out to try to capture him or to try to seize him or to somehow uh, uh, limit his freedom. In verse 9, he admits that he's in distress. He's facing anguish because, verse 11, he's got various adversaries who are strongly allied against him. As you continue to read through the text, his closest friends are those who have plotted to kill him. Verse 13, there's the scheme that he is aware of. He knows it's, it's, in, it's been uh, put, in, put forward, and he knows that his life is in danger. And then the stress of that, the, the thought of that, the, the concerns that that has put upon him and, and the impact of, the, of him emotionally in many other ways, he alludes to the fact that he is really in a very difficult place, and his stress has now begun to break his health. Can you identify with that? There's been a time in your life where you realize things are so difficult that you're feeling a stress-related health problems that have arisen because of it. So what David is writing here is not something written in which he is saying, oh, the wind of blessing is blowing in his face, he's at the beach and always looking at the ocean and it's just a nice sunny day. No, he's writing in the middle of anguish as he affirms, verse 15, my times are in your hands. There are in life dark providences that we will have to eventually deal with. Maybe you're going through those now. Maybe they're from your past. Maybe they are facing you in your future. 
but they are inevitable. I find it helpful to come across the thoughts of Pastor Thomas Boston, one of the Puritans, who wrote this very helpful reminder about how to deal with dark providences, that is, difficult times that arise as part of somehow our times being in God's hand is providence. He says this, Whoever would walk with God must be a careful observer of the Word of God and the providence of God. For by these, in a special manner, God manifests himself to his people. In the one hand, we see what God says. That is, God has revealed himself, his thoughts, his understanding, his plans, his purposes. In the other, that is providence, we understand what he does. These are the two books that every student of holiness ought to be much conversant in. They were both written with the same hand. Isn't that interesting? God wrote the Word, and God's providence is in many ways the kind of things that we're seeing what He's choosing to do in our lives at this point. They both should be carefully read by those who would not only have the name religion but the thing, but they would also be studied together if we would profit from either one. Being taken together, they give light one to the other, and it is our duty to read the Word so also it is our duty to observe the work of God. I wonder, are you facing adversity right now in your life? Would you say that you are, if you look at your circumstances and you step back and you say, well, in many ways it can be compared to dark storm clouds that have descended upon your life and the winds of affliction have picked up and you're now beginning to see that because of these winds of affliction, they're stirring up big waves that are threatening to, in some ways, wash away the familiar landscape of what you've always had in your life. And some of these things are now being threatened and undone. For some of us, that's where we are. For others of us, that's not true of us right now. But I assure you, it will be if you continue to live. Suffering is inevitable in this world. There are moments, there are chapters of dark providence. And David is writing of those and living the reality of that in this text of Scripture. So for him to affirm that my times are in your hand is a helpful reminder to you and me of the fact that we must face these moments. And these are the critical moments when the truth of do we believe in God's providence, do we believe in his promises, these are when those, those two issues are challenging to us. And they challenge our faith. So I'd like to take some reflections very quickly here from John Murray, who wrote a very helpful little booklet called Behind a Frowning Providence. He's alluding to the hymn written by, um, I can't say the guy's name right this moment, but uh, Spafford, thank you. Um, and he wrote the book, uh, wrote the, uh, God works, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He speaks of a frowning providence, that is, when things are difficult in life, yet we know that God is sovereign in control. He suggested, look at verse 7, Murray suggests that behind dark providences there is always a purpose of love. The psalmist writes, I will rejoice and be glad in your loving kindness, your steadfast love, another translation says, because you have seen my affliction, you have known the troubles 
of my soul. We are not to measure God's love. We are not to measure God's love by providence, but we measure it by his promises. Because there are times when the providence of God does lead us into very difficult situations in life. And the way to understand those difficult circumstances of life is to be reminded of the truth of what he said regarding him and his promises. Spurgeon says, when we cannot trace God's hand, we can trust his heart. And sometimes we cannot trace always his hand and understand it all. But the psalmist goes back to the fact that there is a steadfast love that's still in place. A love that will refine us if we truly are the children of God. A love that will prepare us for usefulness, for growth. A love that will expose our hearts, helping us understand more clearly what is it about our hearts that needs to change. A love that will discipline us, Hebrews chapter 12. And so verse 7, when the psalmist says, his steadfast love is what, something that he is counting on. I assure you, God's love will help you and enable you and me both to get through whatever storms of life and frowning providence you may have to go through and endure. His love is like a rock that never wavers. How do we know that? Go back to the cross. Go back to the evidence that God has shown us in his past dealings in history. Secondly, Murray suggests that there is much that remains a mystery. There is much that David did not understand. There's much that you and I do not understand about God's providence and things that go on in our lives. The comments of Dr. Ronald Dunn are interesting, and he offers his own response to the problem of God's silence sometimes as we suffer. He says, I think it's, this is the hardest part of all when we're called to suffer. He says, you can take just about anything if you know why. He says, everywhere I go, and he was apparently a person who traveled quite a bit, speaking different places, he says, I'm asked, why? Why, why? Why did God do this? He says, I'm going to tell you something. He says, God will very seldom answer your question, why? It is not that there are no answers. It's just that when you and I probably wouldn't be able to comprehend the answer if God were to tell us. Besides that, we have to learn to trust him without knowing why. We ask him questions, and what we're usually doing is we're saying, Lord, explain yourself. And we're calling God to account. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you've been asking God why. Certainly those questions are done out of a sense of angst, a sense of suffering, struggle, difficulty. Those questions sometimes, are there are no simple answers. And so I want to encourage us not to look for or, be, or settle for something that's just simplicity in giving us a one, two, three answer to all of our struggles. A third helpful comment, though, in understanding that our times are in God's hands is that ultimate solution on those times when we go through difficult struggles, frowning providences, if you will, is to cultivate a nearness to God in the middle of it, in the middle of those times. Here's where I again want to encourage us as the people of God is to continue and make time in the year ahead for reading the scriptures as a part of your regular habit 
of developing, feeding, and nourishing your soul. Because the reading of Scripture can be very difficult sometimes when you are suffering, but when things are not as difficult, it's helpful to have had that habit formed, that you are reading the Scripture on a regular basis, because that will help you, my friend, when you feel as though in your heart and in your struggle, God may seem far away from you, but it's that pattern of going back to the Word, back to the Word regularly, even though you don't feel like it, is part of a good process of nourishing your soul. So that David says in this particular text, verse 22, fascinating. David says, as for me, I said in my alarm, he's feeling like perhaps his life is spinning out of control. There are people who are ready to take his life at any moment. He is on the run. He is, is un, he's confused, not knowing what to do. He says, I am cut off from before your eyes. There is a time when he becomes so upset that he says, God, I feel like even you've lost track of me. My life is so chaotic. Maybe you felt like that at one point in your life. You're like the train of your life has just gotten so fast and so uh, built up so much speed, it's just gone off the rails. And somehow you feel like God's lost control of everything here. Some of us feel like our world more and more feels like that to us. So David says, in a moment where I just, I got to the point where I just, in my, in my fear, he felt cut off from God. He lost his spiritual bearings. But looking back later, he was able to see that God was right there, that God was there, that God was answering his prayers, that God was hearing his cries, that God was indeed enabling him to continue on. Why? Because he came back to what he knew to be true. And that's the interesting thing about this psalm is it's, it's for prayer. He's constantly talking to God in the midst of whether it's blessings and seeing him get past the difficulty. And now he's thanking God, looking back. He's also crying out to God in the midst of it. It's interesting sometimes what we're asking for when you cultivate our own spiritual walk with God and being near to him. A woman years ago was overcome by a multitude of hardships in her life. She had troubles on every side. There were so many she couldn't could even number them all. And a friend of hers, a Christian, came and said, I just want you to know we're praying for you. The woman paused for a second and she acknowledged that and said, thank you very much. I really appreciate the fact that you're praying for me. And then she asked a very thought-provoking question. She said, I'm just curious. What are you praying for when it comes to praying for me? What are you praying for? So her friend thought for a while, stammered, uh, tried to collect a couple of thoughts and gave some answers that thought he, she thought was be helpful. And again, the woman said, thank you. I appreciate that. But she says, well, th- when, I, when you pray for me, she says, I want you to make one important request. Would you pray that I will not waste all this suffering that God has brought into my life? There's a prayer request that says, God, teach me in the middle of all this difficulty. Incline my heart to be a student, to listen to you, to humble myself, to seek you out, to, to lay myself before you and trust your promises when, even when it's difficult. And I think that's what David is basically saying in this psalm. He's still crying out to God, crying for help, but also affirming the fact that God is his help, God is his strength. I'm convinced that one of the things that really does reveal our hearts 
is suffering, a frowning providence. And again, I would like to suggest if you're not in a reading plan, there are some of these available uh, in our free materials over here to the left as you leave. It's a, a daily readings list. This one is by McShane, a, a, a pastor years ago, who came up with a system of reading, some from the Old Testament, New Testament, and a way to work through those readings in a way that seems to uh, connect interesting concepts. But there are many readings out there. There's one on our website. There's, there's numerous ones you can find on the web, I'm sure. But it's helpful not to just to check them off and say, oh, I read that, but to continually just get you into the habit of reading on a regular basis in the Scriptures, taking time to think about what God has done, what God has promised, what God is doing, what God will do. One of the best things you can do for yourself as you prepare for time in the future that we have no idea what will, that will involve is to take time to draw close to God, be still before Him, and read His Word. Even if you miss five days, even if you miss two weeks, don't let that keep you from going back and just renewing your sense and saying, Lord, help me now as I read your word to understand that you're revealing yourself to me. One final thought here under this heading of the present time. We need to be assured that the outcome, the ending of all of these difficult times that we live through, will be big with mercy. Big with mercy. It's interesting to think in verse 19, David never lost sight of the greatness of God's goodness. Even though he was going through such a heartache, such a time of great trials, how great is your goodness which you have stored up for those who fear you, which you have wrought for those who take refuge in you before the sons of men. Do you see and have evidence and are you assured of God's goodness in your life? Are you ones who can say, well, sometimes I really wonder about God's goodness. Sometimes what we see currently is not the full story of what God is doing in the larger sphere, larger perspective. I think of years ago when I first came here, um, there were some things in my study that were um, in need of some change. The seat I was sitting in was falling apart and and almost feel like I fell over and as I leaned back in it and so that was replaced and I had some chairs replaced in my study and there was a fellow in the church at the time maybe some of you know Steve Conkle uh, he was a carpet genius I don't know what this guy I don't know how you describe him but he can do incredibly creative things with carpet and so he installed carpet as a his vocation and so he offered to change the carpet in my study which is uh, currently the one that's still there and um when he brought it in, he had measured everything and asked me what I wanted, and so he even did the color I was asking for, and he came in, and here's this thing. It's rolled up, and it looked disgusting. It first rolled up, and I'm like, oh, this looks awful. There's all this glue everywhere, and, and there are all these splotches everywhere, and then I realized, that's the backside. <laughs> and he says, oh, no. He said, look at this. And so he, he unrolls it, and it's this mahogany, uh, scarlet, carpet with a gray trim that he had actually cut the trim, puts it inside, cuts, a, cuts an opening in the mahogany, puts the gray inside of it, and then glues it on the back. And it looks awful on the back. But when you turn it over, it's an incredible creation that he has put together. It has an, that is, uh, you can admire it anytime you want. Uh, just come on, step in there. It's still nice. Uh, not as clean as it used to be, but it's nice. The point here is that God does a weaving in his goodness, he is weaving, and on the backside, 
all that looks like ugliness and mess and knots and strings that don't look like they're serving any good purpose. But if you turn it over, someday you'll see that God indeed is creating something that's beautiful and his image is taking shape. Would you take just a second in your hymnal and see if you can find the words for 200, sorry, 342, God moves in a mysterious way. I just want to look at those words real quickly. I didn't bring a hymnal. Okay. Three forty-two. Written by a man who struggled with depression at times, even who was suicidal at times. William Cowper. And this is what he says. Verse two, of, verse 2 and verse 4 is what I want to emphasize. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessing on your head. Verse 4. His purposes, God's purposes, will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. I find it interesting that God's people need to constantly be reminded of that, don't we? In the time of Isaiah, God had to say to his people in Isaiah 40, Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of our God? And what does Isaiah do at that point? He says, Behold your God. Behold your God. Don't forget, God knows you. God has... His plan is unfolding in your life. Our times are in His hands. Let me just uh, conclude with a very quick thought here about the future times being in God's hands. Uh, I find it interesting to know that um, the psalmist, as he thinks about this, he says in verse 3 of Psalm 31, that God, for your sake, you will lead me and guide me. He looks to the future, and he's confident about that. And I just want to speak to one issue here. One of the things I've really noticed this past year is the, how quickly death can come to people. There have been people that we've known in our own church family here who were here one week, and within a short amount of time, those people are gone. They, are, they have left this world. We see it in the news every day. We're reminded of it. Some of us think we're immune from that, but I want to think about the fact that there is a coming for all of us, a day of death. And the scriptures talk about it's appointed for men to die once, but after this comes the judgment. It's appointed. There's a sense in which God appoints that day of death. I don't know when it is. You don't know when it is. But all the days are written in God's book, even our last moments. And God has that moment in his hands. But only we can see is today. We cannot see into tomorrow. Isn't it interesting that the text that Jesus spoke in the moment in which he was dying on the cross, in which he said this was about the last gasp of my existence on this earth, was the verse right here from Psalm 31, verse 5. Into your hand I commit my spirit. David acknowledged that he is committing his spirit into the hands of God thinking that at, mo at any moment he himself might die. 
He's being hunted. And Jesus takes those words and with confidence in the sovereignty of God, acknowledges he can now surrender knowing that this was God's ordained plan for him and therefore he is comfortable and resting in the fact that he's in the hands of God even at that point of death. I would just want to say again, if you're a true believer in Christ, the future time of your life is in the hands of God and I think that we can face our final days with a sense of confident expectation. Here I want to just turn to Romans 8 just very quickly and I'll be done. Romans 8. I want us to notice how in this passage you see allusions to God's control over the past, God's control over the present, and God's control of the future. Romans 8, we read, verse 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose, for whom He foreknew. He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom He predestined, these He also called. And whom He called, these He also justified. And whom He justified, these He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who's against us? And he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are being considered as sheep to be slaughtered. All these things we are overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you see how Paul takes the gospel and says to believers, do you understand that God in, in the past whose times are in his hands of our past dealings, that we understand that he foreknew us, predestined us, called us, and justified us. If the God who has done those things is now the God who is, whose times were in his hands because he says in chapter 8 following, 1 through 17, the Holy Spirit is now in his people and dwelling among us, and he is working in us. He actually lives and abides uh, in his people. And the future time will come undoubtedly in which God will definitely glorify us, verse 30, of Romans 8. Who will condemn us? No one. Who will bring a charge against those whom God has chosen? No one. And therefore, there's a sense of which we can rest and know peace and enjoy the goodness and graciousness of our God. Notice the psalmist writes at a time in which he says, I am trusting in God. How does he trust God? because he is taking God at his promises to heart. We started the service today by singing, Blessed be your name. Can you say, Blessed be the name of God? When you're found in the desert place, though you walk through a wilderness, can you say, Blessed be your name? Blessed be the name of God when the sun's shining down on you, the world is all as it should be. Yes, we can bless the Lord then. But how about, Blessed be the name on the road marked with suffering, though there's pain in the offering. Can you still say, blessed be your name? It's fascinating. Again, I didn't know all these things were being coordinated, but did you notice in Psalm 31, it's right there in the text, verse 21, 
Blessed be the Lord. Blessed be the Lord. How can we say that? Because our times are in His hands. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we as finite people are very limited in our understanding of all your dealings. We cannot know clearly or fully or exhaustively all of your dealings with us in the past. We know, Lord, that all of your dealings in the past does not prevent nor does it exclude our responsibility to respond to you in the present. But we thank you that it enables us to respond in the present, to know that you are a God who mysteriously works, that you have a purpose, you have a plan. We thank you that that plan is unfolding. We thank you that even now our times are in your hands. I pray for those of us, Lord, who are going through hardship, trials, afflictions, and for those of us who will face those realities as we move forward into this new year. How I pray, Father, that you might teach us to trust you. I pray that you might so work by your Spirit and by the convincing truths of the gospel in seeing what you have done through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that we would be convinced in our souls and in our minds and our spirits that you are the God who is unfolding your plan, that things are working together for good to those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And so, Father, we pray that you might give us a holy confidence in you as we move forward into a new year. We pray that we might have our confidence anchored not in our performance, not in our circumstances, but our confidence is rooted in you our unchanging God who is full of goodness, who is faithful in all your ways, a God who has made your promises to us in the gospel through Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray again today, if there's someone here who is not sure of their standing with Christ, that you would so incline their heart that they would come to Christ, that they would receive him even this day. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.